Okay, 1 Thessalonians. Before we get there, here's what I want to ask you guys. So I think there's 27 New Testament books, right? 27, 39 in the Old Testament, right? Of those 27 books in the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 of them, okay? Of those 13 letters that Paul wrote, he wrote some for good causes and some for more not good causes. When he writes the church at Thessalonica, is Paul, is he commending them or is he perhaps uh, addressing an issue? Is it a good letter or is it a bad letter? What do you guys think? It's a good letter. They're killing it, man. Paul's writing to them saying, you guys are doing a good job. You're walking well in the faith. Okay, And so there's some things that we can learn through this letter, a ton of things. But one of the things I want to point out today is just the focus on the church. Okay, So let me give you a few quotes to open up our time. Here's the first one. Through the ages, Christians have looked upon the church as the company of the committed, the visible followers of Christ, members of his body in a broken world, pilgrims en route to New Jerusalem. The vast majority of believers consider the church to be God's conduit, the carrier of the faith from one generation to another. It's a big responsibility. And Paul's commending them for taking on this responsibility well. We have a huge responsibility of carrying the faith from this generation to the next, to the next. For those of you who serve in children's ministry, thank you, because that's where it all starts. Here's our second quote. There is a perceptive or insightful story told of Heinrich Heine, the German poet who was standing with a friend before the cathedral of Amiens in France. Tell me, Heinrich said his friend, why can't people build piles like this anymore? My dear friend, replied Heine, in those days people had convictions. We moderns have opinions, and it takes more than an opinion to build a Gothic cathedral. Church, we are not to be a a people of opinion, we are to be a people of conviction. And the conviction that we have comes straight from the Word of God. It's not me, it's not any man, but it's straight from the Word of God. And when we are people of conviction, we can do amazing things for the Lord. Amen? The third quote, which is not on the screens, is this. Several preachers have told of a, a deaf member of a church and a rather typical-minded American churchman who would ask this deaf person, Why do you come to church each Sunday when you can't even hear the service? And the humble man replied, I come each week to let people know which side I'm on. (laughs) Right? The Lord says, you're either for me or against me. And we, at some point in our lives, we declare which side we're on, which side we're going to serve on. And with that comes the convictions that we live when we serve the Lord God Almighty, which we articulate through his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we're a church, a church that you established, a church that you died for. And we, we indeed, Lord, we want to be people of conviction, not people of opinion. Help us in that endeavor, Lord, we pray. For when we are people of conviction, Lord, you can do great things in us and through us. Just simple, broken, sinful people, Lord, you do amazing things through the through the people that you died for, the people that you love, the people that you care for, the people that you've poured your Holy Spirit into. Lord, we pray that we continue to grow in our conviction of you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right. So I got two tasks 
three maybe, one, we've got to give an overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's the first task. The second one is we're going to cover verses one through five, and the third task is I hope I can keep speaking by the time we get to the end of it. Oh, pray for me. All right, so quick overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians, the city. Let's talk about the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a flourishing city of roughly 200,000 people back when Paul wrote this letter. That's a big town. And most were native because it was in Greece, so most people were native Greeks, but there were also some Romans, there were also some Orientals, and of course there were also some Jews. Wherever commerce flourished, as it did in Thessalonica, in the ancient world, you would find Jewish businessmen. And so with that would come an influential Jewish synagogue where Paul could then go and preach. Thessalonica was the chief seaport of the Roman province called Macedonia. It ranked up there with Corinth and Ephesus as great shipping centers. Its location (laughs) allowed for direct contact with many other important cities. So it's very strategic in the spread of the gospel. It's why God called Paul to Thessalonica, so that when the gospel spread, it can strategically go to the right places. Thessalonica was built by a gentleman named Cassander in 315 BC. It was named after his wife. Any guess what his wife's name was? Thessalonica. You guys are so smart, right? Her name was Judy. She's like, what? Yeah, Thessalonica. She was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Cassander was a Greek general under Alexander the Great. This city still exists today in Greece. It's called Thessaloniki. It has about a million people, just a smidge over a million people in the metropolitan area. And so it's number two in size behind number one, which would be what? Athens. That's correct. So what's its connection to Scripture? This letter that Paul wrote to Thessalonica, the first letter, 1 Thessalonians, was written around 50 A.D., and it was most likely Paul's second letter. The first letter Paul wrote was the book of Galatians to the church at Galatia. And Paul first preached to Thessalonica during his second missionary journey. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 16. We can see where Paul first came to town in Acts, in the book of Acts. So it's a little to your left of... Thessalonians, go to Acts chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. This is where we see Paul visiting there for the first time. Boy, I'm a little slow on my my fingers here. Okay, Acts chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. So a vision appeared to Paul during the evening. And the vision was this, that a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to Paul and saying... Come over to Macedonia and help us. I love that. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Wouldn't we all love to have dreams like that? Just say, come, speak to me the word of God. Share the word of God. And then they would receive it when we, when we did so. I just think that's powerful. Go to Acts chapter 17. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Let's see what happens While he's there, there's a lot in these four verses. Acts 17, starting at verse 1. So when they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, as I mentioned earlier. And according to Paul's custom, he would go into the synagogue, where there's a lot of Jews, but also people of the city. And for three Sabbaths, 
Okay, so three days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Paul was there three days, three Sabbaths. Verse 3, and he was explaining, so he did two things. He, he was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So he's talking to them about Old Testament scriptures. We're pointing to this Messiah that would come, that would suffer, and that would die, and that would rise again. In the second half of verse 3, and he was saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you, he's that person. So he's saying, hey, Scripture pointed to this person, and this person, Jesus Christ, came, so he's put, put two, two together, right? That was his message. It was a one-verse message. Scripture spoke of a Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah. And look what happens in verse 4. And some of them, some of the Jews, were persuaded and became believers. They joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So he preaches this very short two-part message, essentially, and a bunch of, some Jews and a bunch of Greeks and some influential women give their lives to Jesus Christ. So, as I mentioned, as was Paul's custom, he would preach in the synagogue knowing that he would find people who held much in common. So that's why he goes there. They had a respect for the Old Testament, they had a respect for theological concepts, and there was commonality in cultural practices. So Paul found some common ground as he preached. That's what we should do as well. Find common ground with people before we share the gospel with them. And so as Luke described it in Acts 17, Paul's message was twofold. The Old Testament pointed to a suffering, dying, and resurrected Messiah, and all these predictions, we call them prophecy, were filled by Jesus of Nazareth. That's the message that Paul preached. And then we see in verse 4 of chapter 17 that some Jews several Gentile Greeks, and the wives of some prominent Thessalonian citizens all gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Mm. We already read in Acts chapter 17 that Paul was there for how many Sabbaths preaching? Three. He was there for just three days. Yet, (laughs) they became a church of excellence with very limited teaching, with very limited doctrine, they are killing it. Paul was there three days, he teaches some doctrine, he gets run out of town, and they are killing it as a church. Check out, go back to Thessalonians if you're not already there, First Thessalonians. I want you to look in chapter 4. Go to chapter 4 of First Thessalonians. Go to chapter 4, look at verse 1. Finally, so he's winding down his letter. Finally, brethren, two things. We request and exhort you, okay, in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. You get that? Paul is saying, I'm going to ask something of you and I'm going to commend you. I'm going to request of you, and I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to exhort you, church, for doing things with excellence. And I'm going to request that you excel still more. That's our challenge. It's always our challenge. We can never stop growing in the Lord. If you're doing well with the Lord, if you're doing excellent in the Lord, then I exhort you, but I also request of you, as Paul does, to excel still more. We do a lot of things excellent 
And yet the challenge remains for us to excel still more. It's both an encouragement and a warning. The minute you think that you've reached it, oh, be careful. Scripture says that we should take heed, right, lest we should fall. The enemy is constantly looking to take us out. And so if you're excelling, I commend you, but the encouragement is to excel still more. Amen? Look at verses 9 and 10, also in chapter 4. Verses 9 and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, right? That's, Christ says that, you, that we shall be known by the love that we have one for another. As, the, as for the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward, look at that, all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. These guys are killing it. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. It's just such a great word to be both commended and challenged at the same time. We do so many things well here, and yet God still says to us, excel still more. Isn't that fantastic? We serve an infinite God. We're never going to be done growing. We're never going to be done excelling. And so excel still more. Paul was there three Sabbaths. (laughs) Jesus was here for three years with his disciples. Jesus poured into his disciples for three years, and you could argue that that wasn't long enough. Jesus, three years with the disciples. Paul, three Sabbaths in Thessalonica. But we see the disciples, they kill it. They eventually figure it out, and they start to excel, and they start to excel still more. And so the question becomes for us, church, is this. Does discipleship depend on the discipler or the disciple? Do you need three Sabbaths? Do you need three years with Jesus? How long do we need before we own and before we start to excel and do things with excellence? Sometimes we, we, we point the finger in the wrong direction, and the finger should be pointed at us to say, I have a responsibility. Paul was there for three Sabbaths, and he's writing to a church that's just killing it. It's such an encouragement for me, I believe, and for you as well. Though Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was not long, it was solid enough to leave behind a thriving church. That's the, that's the reality of this letter. Preach three Sabbaths, he gets run out of town, and the church is thriving. Isn't that interesting? So the question then becomes, what makes a church a church? He's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He was there three times. What makes a church a church? I think it's this. I think it's people gathered around the truth of the gospel message, which is intended to make disciples set us free from sin and grow us in our holiness. That's a church. We can make church about a lot of other things, but that's what a church is. Gathered around the truth of God's word, intended to make disciples, set us free from sin, and grow us in our holiness. I hope we're doing well. I think many of you are excelling. Excel still more. The purpose of this letter. Paul, as I mentioned earlier, was run out of town. And so he sends Timothy back. He's like, man, I was there three times. And a church is formed, and they run him out of town. And so he sends Timothy back to see how this new church is doing, how these new believers are holding up, and they're holding up fine. They're doing great. And then Timothy rejoins Paul back at Corinth with encouraging news, which leads to this letter. I love it. And so I ask you, who might you write a letter to? Who might you write a letter to? Encouraging and affirming them and how well they are walking with the Lord. Do you do that? We all have relationships with 
brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know if people actually write letters anymore, right? Like an actual pen and a piece of paper. Send them a text. Shoot them an email. Do a voice memo. Whatever you got to do. But if somebody's walking well with the Lord, wouldn't that be great to receive a letter? Just saying, I see you. You're doing things with excellence. Excel still more. Thank you for modeling Christ's likeness to me and to others. Let them know, please. Conversely, <laughs> are you and I, are we walking in such a way to be written to? If somebody went to write us a letter, we'd be like, man, I have no idea what to say. This is going to be rough. I'm going to have to lie. <laughs> right? Are you and I walking in such a way of being written to? If you are, tell somebody to write you. Say, come on, man, write me a letter. Some reasons for this letter. Number one, to commend, as we mentioned, to commend their faithful living and their conduct of holiness. Number two, to encourage them through persecution. We'll talk about that as we get into the book later. Three, to answer questions that they sent through Timothy. As you read these five chapters, you can see that Paul's addressing some things that Timothy must have brought back to him, questions that they must have had. Hey, when you go back to Paul, can you ask him about this? Can you ask him about that? Four, to correct misinformation. Hey, there are times we get misinformed, right, church? We get misinformed sometimes. That's why we have to be in God's word. To correct misinformation, false accusations. They were accusing Paul of doing this for money. Of all things we know about Paul, the last thing on his mind was making a buck. But that was a false accusation that he faced. And then the tendency not to respect and honor the church's spiritual leaders. We'll talk about that later. And number five, to give instruction on what would happen to Christians who would die before the Lord's return. These new Christians were confused about the return of Jesus Christ. When's it going to happen? What's going to happen? When, you know, this, that, and the other thing, right? Not much has changed. Not much has changed since then. People are still trying to figure out, when's he coming back? Are we going to be here? What's going to happen first? What's going to happen second? But here's the deal. Every chapter in these five chapters, every chapter ends with reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. However, also each reference relates the doctrine of him coming back to a practical aspect of Christian living. Did you get that? All five chapters end with Jesus is coming back. But Paul says, so what's the practical application for today? We can get really wrapped up with when Jesus is coming back, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, all this stuff. And Paul's saying, that's all good and fine. We know he's coming back. So let's talk about today. How do we live our lives today? Because we know that to be true. So here's a question. Should not, or a statement, or yeah, a question. Should not what we know about tomorrow determine how we live today? Should not what we know about tomorrow the hope that we have in Christ's return, should not that affect how we live today? Does your past and your present reflect what you know about your future? The the decisions, the things that you pour your time and energy into, the things that you've done in your past, the things that you're doing in your present, do they reflect what you know to be true about your future? They should. They really should. Okay, let's read the first five verses. That's a little bit of an overview of this letter. Let's read the first five verses of 1 Thessalonians. Verse 1. Paul and Silvanus. Do you guys know who Silvanus is? It's Silas. It's the Roman form of Silas. So it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father... And the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 
Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Mm. Constantly bearing in mind these three things, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in Christ, in the presence of God. Knowing, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you, and we did that for your sake. So let's go through these one verse at a time. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church. And then right after that, he mentions Jesus Christ. What's my point in all that? (laughs) Jesus Christ must be at the center of the church. If we call ourselves Christians, we got to be Christ-like. we got to be Christ-focused. Christ must be the center of the church. And so Paul lays that foundation right away to say, you're a church, and it's because you put Jesus Christ at the center of what it means to be a church. Check out Isaiah 28, 16. There's multiple passages about Jesus being the, the cornerstone or the centerpiece. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested Stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. If you haven't put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, you're disturbed. And if you're not, you should be. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. When you give your life to Christ, you're no longer strangers and aliens to God, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're part of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ himself is the centerpiece, is the cornerstone. Yes, the Word of God has a place through people like pastors and and prophets and elders and etc., but Jesus Christ must always be the centerpiece. It's never about man. It's always about Jesus Christ. We also see in verse 1, <laughs> Paul's customary greeting of grace and peace. He says that in all of his letters. We love the blessing of grace and peace. I need grace, and I desire peace. And I only find peace through grace, right? And so we love the blessing of grace and peace being proclaimed to us, or being proclaimed on us, or over us, or however you want to say it. And so we receive that from Paul. But I ask you, do we equally proclaim it upon others? Do we extend grace to others so that we can be at peace with others? In order for us to be peace with one another, at peace with one another, we have to extend grace. We have to. Hey, look, raise your hand if you've never sinned. We're all guilty. So we've all sinned, but we can all choose to extend grace to one another so that we can be at peace with one another. It's why we're at peace with the Almighty God is because He extended grace to us. Of all the institutions, the church must be a place of grace and peace. Amen? Yeah. Verse 2, church. We're in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. That should take some time, right? We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers, which means they're praying always if they're always giving thanks. 
Verse 2 tells us, look how it starts. We give thanks. Verse 2 tells us that thanks is something we give. We can choose to give thanks or we can choose not to give thanks. It doesn't say we have to feel thankful. It says that we give thanks. We give thanks. Do we have to feel thankful in order to give thanks? No. We don't have to feel thankful to give thanks. Does something need to happen to us in order for us to give thanks for others? I don't need anything to happen to me to give thanks for Bobby Rogers, to say, Lord, thank you for Bobby Rogers. Thank you for her faithfulness. Thank you for her dedication to your word. I can be thankful for her regardless of what happens to me. It's the attitude that we're to have. It's the attitude that Paul has. It's the commitment that Paul makes to be thankful for others. (laughs) Imagine the impact on the church. Imagine the impact on the church corporately and upon our lives individually if or when we pray and give thanks for each other all the time. Imagine what happens to us, our relationships individually and collectively, when we're always giving thanks and praying for one another. If I'm constantly giving thanks for Jeff, for Jeff Shimkus, I'm always thanking the Lord for him and I'm praying for him. When he goes sideways, I'm probably going to be more gracious because he's in my heart. I love him. And when I go sideways, the same, because he's praying for me and giving thanks to me. I'm not sure which one of us is more guilty. Probably me, huh, Jeff? Yeah, if you know Jeff, it's probably Jeff. <laughs> Amen. I love that. Let's, with that in mind, let's reread verse 2. Let's reread that. We, Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. What a great challenge for us, church, to always pray, to always give thanks for others. Mm. It'll revolutionize the church, I believe. Verse 3, church. He goes on, constantly bearing in mind the three things I mentioned earlier. Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in Christ in the presence of God. Oh, the three cardinal virtues that are found here in this verse. The three cardinal virtues, faith, love, and hope. These virtues should describe every person claiming to live the Christian life. Faith, love, and hope. They are the three greatest evidences of salvation. If you truly have committed your life to Jesus Christ... Those are the evidences of whether or not that's true, is if you are a person of faith, you are a person of love, and you are a person of hope. How would you score on these things? On a scale from one to ten, what would your score be on each of these three? Have your scores gotten better over the last few months and years, or have they gotten worse, or have they stayed the same? I hope they're improving. And many of you that I've known now for close to four years, I think they've gotten a lot better. Before moving on, there's a caveat to these three virtues. There's a caveat to these three things in that verse. Check it out. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your perseverance or steadfastness of hope. There's going to be work, there's going to be labor, and there's going to be some perseverance. All good things usually have a price to pay. 
But God says you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, and he infuses us with his Holy Spirit so that we can do the work, we can do the labor, we can persevere, so that we see our faith and our love and our hope continue to grow and mature. Thank you, Lord, for doing that for us. Hmm. All the more reason that we need to be praying for one another and thanking God for one another so that we can do the work and the labor and persevere. Church, we're in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Hmm. I love how that verse starts, knowing. There are things that we should know and things that we could know. We get to know that we're loved by God. We get to know that he chose us. And we get to know, and the end of verse 3 talks about being in his presence, right? So here's what's amazing. We get to know these three things from these verses, that God loves us, He has chosen us, and he's present with us. That's what we know from the end of verse 3 and verse 4, that he loves us, he chose us, and he's present with us. Scripture says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So God loves us. And when we put our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, then he chooses us. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit so that his presence is with us always. God loves us. He has chosen us, and he's present with us. It's just so powerful. And those are things that we should know and we can know. Verse 5, church. Let's read that. I love verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. There's a gospel, and we preach it, right? Paul went there to preach. He went to preach the gospel message. But it didn't stop there. That's not the end of the gospel. Check this out. It did not come to you in word only. That's where it started but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you knew what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Let me break that down. Let me show this on the screen. The true elements and the impact of the gospel message is like this, and it's like an order, right? So it starts off in verse 5. It did not come to you with word only. So the gospel message, it has words. It has words. That's what Paul went. He went there to preach right? But then it has power. He says it didn't come in word only, but also in power. God, the, the, scripture, scripture says that the word of God sets us free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's powerful when you recognize God's word for what it is. This is true. Everything else is a lie. Then there's power in the word of God. And then the Holy Spirit comes alongside it. So it comes, it has a partnership, right? So not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. So then the Holy Spirit comes alongside you so you can live that life that's pleasing to God. And then check this out, with full conviction. So you start to believe, you start to live a life of conviction. Your life changes, you have fruit because of the conviction that you have in God's word, right? And then look at this, just as you know what kind of men we prove, and then there's proof. So you have this conviction and then you have this proof in your life that you're killing it just like the Thessalonians are. So you hear the gospel. It's powerful. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in you and helps you to live a life of Christianity. Then you start having convictions that change, that drive your life. And then there's proof in your life that you have fruit, that you are a child of God, faith and hope and love. And then look how it ends. And we prove to be among you for your sake. And so once you have that proof, then you go and you bless other people. Do you see the progression there? It has words, it has power, it has a partnership, it has impact, there's proof in our life, and then it has a calling to go and repeat the cycle in somebody else's life. They were 
proved men. And they did all these things for somebody else's sake. You see how that works? So that when they preach that gospel for somebody else's sake, then those people hear it. And it becomes powerful. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside them. And they start living lives of conviction. And they start living lives of proof. And then they go and do the same thing for somebody else's sake. And the cycle has continued and continued and continued for thousands of years. Church, truly at my core, I want you to hear this. At my core and at the core of the elders is the desire to do this for your sake. It's what we're called to, to do this for your sake. Amen? Here's a quote from one of my commentaries about the local church. I just love this. A local church is a group of people called out by God from the mass of humanity to live a life of separation to Him, a life of conviction, of separation to Him, to do things for Him, to advance His purposes, to do things for other people's sake, for His sake. Are we separate from humanity or do we look too much like humanity? Do we read His Word and do we live our lives with this in mind? The Thessalonians were a constant source of joy to Paul, Silas, and Timothy because they understood this and they were killing it because they chose to. It's just such a great encouragement for us. And so, church, thank you for being excellent, but excel still more. Amen?